0: Black Clock Audio Tales 2019, Mary Shelley. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green, scaly-looking fabric that's actually a soft plush. Foam footbeds, non-slip grips on your soles so you don't slip around. One size fits most, up to women's 10.5, men's nine. Footbed measures 10.5 black clock audio tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story either a chapter or two at a time or a couple of short stories maybe some folklore join us in our exploration of old ghost stories supernatural fiction horror tales folk tales fantasy gothic horror weird fiction cosmic horror and don't forget to join us at the end of the month Every last Tuesday of the month, where we have The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, where you get to hear me talk in a lot more dumb voices than right now. Look for us wherever you look for podcasts, rate, review, and give us five, four, three, two, one stars. We don't like the one and two stars, but hey, if that's how you feel, you probably have a vendetta against us and don't know how to use the skip button. We are on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Twitter as Black Clock Audio Tales, or just Google us, Black Clock Audio Tales. There's no one else named that, otherwise we wouldn't name it this. Thank you, and let's get going with The Last Man by Mary Shelley. Volume
1: 3 Chapter Four of The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Our escort had been directed to prepare our abode for the night at the inn, opposite the ascent to the castle. We could not again visit the halls and familiar chambers of our home on a mere visit. We had already left forever the glades of Windsor, and all of coppice, flowery hedgerow, and murmuring stream, which gave shape and intensity to the love of our country and the almost superstitious attachment with which we regarded native England. It had been our intention to have called at Lucy's dwelling in Datchet, and to have reassured her with promises of aid and protection, before we repaired to our quarters for the night. Now, as the Countess of Windsor and I turned down the steep hill that led from the castle, we saw the children, who had just stopped in their caravan, at the inn door. They had passed through Datchet without halting, I dreaded to meet them, and to be the bearer of my tragic story. So while they were still occupied in the hurry of arrival, I suddenly left them, and through the snow and clear moonlight air, hastened along the well-known road to Datchet. Well known indeed it was. Each cottage stood on its accustomed site; each tree wore its familiar appearance. Habit had graven unerasably on my memory, every turn and change of object on the road. At a short distance beyond the little park, was an elm half blown down by a storm, some ten years ago, and still, with leafless snow-laden branches, it stretched across the pathway, which wound through a meadow beside a shallow brook, whose brawling was silenced by frost. That stile, that white gate, that hollow oak tree, which doubtless once belonged to the forest, and which now showed in the moonlight its gaping rent, to whose fanciful appearance, tricked out by the dusk into a resemblance of the human form, the children had given the name of Falstaff. All these objects were as well known to me as the cold hearth of my deserted home, and every moss-grown wall and plot of orchard ground, alike as twin lambs are to each other in a stranger's eye, yet to my accustomed gaze bore differences, distinction and a name. England remained, though England was dead. It was the ghost of merry England that I beheld. Under those greenwood shade, Passing generations had sported in security and ease. To this painful recognition of familiar places was added a feeling experienced by all, understood by none, a feeling as if in some state less visionary than a dream, and some past real existence, I had seen all I saw with precisely the same feelings as I now beheld them, as if all my sensations were a duplex mirror of a former revelation. To get rid of this oppressive sense, I strove to imagine change in this tranquil spot. This augmented my mood, by causing me to bestow more attention on the objects which occasioned me pain. I reached Datchet and Lucy's humble abode, once noisy with Saturday night revelers, or trim and neat on Sunday morning, it had borne testimony to the labors and orderly habits of the housewife. The snow lay high about the door, as if it had remained unclosed for many days. What scene of death hath Roscius now to act? I muttered to myself as I looked at the dark casements. First I thought I saw a light in one of them, but it proved to be merely the refraction of the moonbeams, while the only sound was the crackling branches as the breeze whirred the snowflakes from them. The moon sailed high and unclouded in the interminable ether, while the shadow of the cottage lay back on the garden behind. I entered this by the open wicket, and anxiously examined each window. At length, I detected a ray of light struggling through a closed shutter in one of the upper rooms. It was a novel feeling, alas, to look at any house and say there dwells its usual inmate. The door of the house was merely on the latch, so I entered and descended the moonlit staircase. The door of the inhabited room was ajar. Looking in, I saw Lucy, sitting as at work at the table on which the light stood. The implements of needlework were about her. But her hand had fallen on her lap, and her eyes, fixed on the ground, showed by their vacancy that her thoughts wandered. Traces of care and watching had diminished her former attractions, but her simple dress and cap, her desponding attitude, and the single candle that cast its light upon her, gave for a moment a picturesque grouping to the whole. A fearful reality recalled me from the thought. A figure lay stretched on the bed, covered by a sheet. Her mother was dead, and Lucy, apart from all the world, deserted and alone, watched beside the corpse during the weary night. I entered the room, and my unexpected appearance at first drew a scream from the lone survivor of a dead nation, but she recognized me and recovered herself, with the quick exercise of self-control habitual to her. "'Did you not expect me?' I asked in that low voice which the presence of the dead makes us as it were instinctively assume. You are very good, replied she, to have come yourself. I can never thank you sufficiently, but it is too late. Too late, cried I. What do you mean? It is not too late to take you from this deserted place and conduct you to— My own loss, which I had forgotten as I spoke, now made me turn away, while choking grief impeded my speech. I threw open the window and looked on the cold, waning, ghastly, misshapen circle on high and the chill, white earth beneath. Did the spirit of sweet Idris sail along the moon-frozen crystal air? No, no, a more genial atmosphere, a lovelier habitation, was surely hers. I indulged in this meditation for a moment, and then again addressed the mourner, who stood leaning against the bed with the expression of resigned despair, of complete misery, and a patient sufferance of it which is far more touching than any of the insane ravings or wild gesticulation of untamed sorrow. I desired to draw her from this spot, but she opposed my wish. That class of persons whose imagination and sensibility have never been taken out of the narrow circle immediately in view, if they possess these qualities to any extent, are apt to pour their influence into the very realities which appear to destroy them, and to cling to these with double tenacity from not being able to comprehend anything beyond. Thus Lucy, in desert England, in a dead world, wished to fulfill the usual ceremonies of the dead, such as were customary to the English country people, when death was a rare visitant, and gave us time to receive his dreaded usurpation with pomp and circumstance, going forth in procession to deliver the keys of the tomb into his conquering hand. She had already, alone as she was, accomplished some of these, and the work on which I found her employed was her mother's shroud. My heart sickened at such detail of woe, which a female can endure, but which is more painful to the masculine spirit than deadliest struggle, or throes of unutterable but transient agony. This must not be, I told her, and then, as further inducement, I communicated to her my recent loss, and gave her the idea that she must come with me to take charge of the orphan children, whom the death of Idris had deprived of her mother's care. Lucy never resisted the call of a duty, so she yielded, and closing the casements and doors with care, she accompanied me back to Windsor. As we went, she communicated to me the occasion of her mother's death. Either by some mischance she had got sight of Lucy's letter to Idris, or she had overheard her conversation with the countryman who bore it, however it might be she obtained a knowledge of the appalling situation of herself and her daughter. Her aged frame could not sustain the anxiety and horror this discovery instilled. She concealed her knowledge from Lucy, but brooded over it through sleepless nights, till fever and delirium, swift forerunners of death, disclosed the secret. Her life, which had long been hovering on its extinction, now yielded at once to the united effects of misery and sickness and that same morning she had died. After the tumultuous emotions of the day, I was glad to find on my arrival at the inn that my companions had retired to rest. I gave Lucy in charge to the Countess's attendant, and then sought repose from my various struggles and impatient regrets. For a few moments, the events of the day floated in disastrous pageant through my brain, till sleep bathed it in forgetfulness. When morning dawned and I awoke, it seemed as if my slumber had endured for years. My companions had not shared my oblivion. Clara's swollen eyes showed that she has passed the night in weeping. The Countess looked haggard and wan. Her firm spirit had not found relief in tears, and she suffered the more from all the painful retrospect and agonizing regret that now occupied her. We departed from Windsor as soon as the burial rites had been performed for Lucy's mother and, urged on by an impatient desire to change the scene, went forward towards Dover with speed, our escort having gone before to provide horses, finding them either in the warm stables they instinctively sought during the cold weather or standing shivering in the bleak fields ready to surrender their liberty in exchange for offered corn. During our ride the Countess recounted to me, extraordinary circumstances which had brought her so strangely to my side in the chancel of St. George's Chapel. When last she had taken leave of Idris, as she looked anxiously on her faded person and pallid countenance, she had suddenly been visited by a conviction that she saw her for the last time. It was hard to part with her while under the dominion of this sentiment, and for the last time she endeavored to persuade her daughter to commit herself to her nursing, permitting me to join Adrian. Idris mildly refused, and thus they separated. The idea that they should never again meet grew on the Countess's mind, and haunted her perpetually. A thousand times she had resolved to turn back and join us, and was again and again restrained by the pride and anger of which she was the slave. Proud of heart as she was, she bathed her pillow with nightly tears, and through the day was subdued by nervous agitation and expectation of the dreaded event which she was wholly incapable of curbing. She confessed that at this period her hatred of me knew no bounds, since she considered me as the sole obstacle to the fulfillment of her dearest wish, that of attending upon her daughter in her last moments. She desired to express her fears to her son, and to seek consolation from his sympathy with, or courage from his rejection of, her auguries. On the first day of her arrival at Dover, she walked with him on the sea beach, and with the timidity characteristic of passionate and exaggerated feeling, was by degrees bringing the conversation to the desired point, when she could communicate her fears to him, when the messenger who bore my letter announcing our temporary return to Windsor came writing down to them. He gave some oral account of how he had left us, and added that notwithstanding the cheerfulness and good courage of Lady Idris, he was afraid that she would hardly reach Windsor alive. True, said the Countess. Your fears are just. She is about to expire. As she spoke, her eyes were fixed on a tomb-like hollow of the cliff, and she saw she averred the same to me with solemnity, Idris pacing slowly towards the cave. She was turned from her. Her head was bent down. Her white dress was such as she was accustomed to wear, except that a thin crepe-like veil covered her golden tresses and concealed her as a dim, transparent mist. She looked dejected, as docilely yielding to a commanding power. She submissively entered and was lost in the dark recess. Were I subject to visionary moods, said the Venerable Lady as she continued her narrative, I might doubt my eyes and condemn my credulity, but reality is the world I live in, and what I saw I doubt not had existence beyond myself. From that moment I could not rest. It was worth my existence to see her once again before she died. I knew that I should not accomplish this, yet I must endeavor. I immediately departed for Windsor, and though I was assured that we traveled speedily, it seemed to me that our progress was snail-like, and that delays were created solely for my annoyance. Still, I accused you, and heaped on your head the fiery ashes of my burning impatience. It was no disappointment, though an agonizing pang when you pointed to her last abode and words would ill-express the abhorrence I that moment felt towards you, the triumphant impediment to my dearest wishes. I saw her, and anger and hate and injustice died at her bier, giving place at their departure to a remorse, great God that I should feel it, which must last while memory and feeling endure. To medicine such remorse, to prevent awakening love and newborn mildness from producing the same bitter fruit that hate and harshness had done, I devoted all my endeavors to soothe the venerable penitent. Our party was a melancholy one. Each was possessed by regret for what was remediless, for the absence of his mother shadowed even the infant gaiety of Evelyn. Added to this was the prospect of the uncertain future. Before the final accomplishment of any great voluntary change, The mind vacillates, now soothing itself by fervent expectation, now recoiling from obstacles which seem never to have presented themselves before with so frightful an aspect. An involuntary tremor ran through me when I thought that in another day we might have crossed the watery barrier and have set forward on that hopeless, interminable, sad wandering, which but a short time before I regarded as the only relief to sorrow that our situation afforded. Our approach to Dover was announced by the loud roarings of the wintry sea. They were borne miles inland by the sound-laden blast, and by their unaccustomed uproar imparted a feeling of insecurity and peril to our stable abode. At first we hardly permitted ourselves to think that any unusual eruption of nature caused this tremendous war of air and water, but rather fancied that we merely listened to what we had heard a thousand times before when we had watched the flocks of fleece-crowned waves, driven by the winds, come to lament and die on the barren sands and pointed rocks. But we found upon advancing farther that Dover was overflowed. Many of the houses were overthrown by surges which filled the streets, and with hideous brawling sometimes retreated leaving the pavement of the town bare, till again hurried forward by the influx of ocean, they returned with thunder sound to their usurped station. Hardly less disturbed than the tempestuous world of waters was the assembly of human beings that from the cliff fearfully watched its ravings. On the morning of the arrival of the immigrants under the conduct of Adrian, the sea had been serene and glassy. The slight ripples refracted the sunbeams, which shed their radiance through the clear blue frosty air. This placid appearance of nature was hailed as a good augury for the voyage. and the chief immediately repaired to the harbour, to examine two steamboats which were moored there. On the following midnight, when all were at rest, a frightful storm of wind and clattering rain and hail first disturbed them, and the voice of one shrieking in the streets that the sleepers must awake or they would be drowned. And when they rushed out, half-clothed, to discover the meaning of this alarm, they found that the tide, rising above every mark, was rushing into the town. They ascended the cliff but the darkness permitted only the white crest of waves to be seen, while the roaring wind mingled its howlings in dire accord with the wild surges. The awful hour of night, the utter inexperience of many who had never seen the sea before, the wailing of women and the cries of children added to the horror of the tumult. All the following day, the same scene continued. When the tide ebbed, the town was left dry, but on its flow it rose even higher than on the preceding night. The vast ships that lay rotting in the roads were whirled from their anchorage, and driven and jammed against the cliff. The vessels in the harbor were flung on land like seaweed, and there battered to pieces by the breakers. The waves dashed against the cliff, which if any place it had been before loosened now gave way, and the affrighted crowd saw vast fragments of the near-earth fall with crash and roar into the deep. This sight operated differently on different persons. The greater part thought it a judgment of God to prevent or punish our immigration from our native land. Many were doubly eager to quit a nook of ground now become their prison, which appeared unable to resist the inroads of ocean's giant waves. When we arrived at Dover, after a fatiguing day's journey, we all required rest and sleep, but the scene acting around us soon drove away such ideas. We were drawn along with the greater part of our companions to the edge of the cliff there to listen to and make a thousand conjectures. A fog narrowed our horizon to about a quarter of a mile, and the misty veil, cold and dense, enveloped sky and sea in equal obscurity. What added to our inquietude was the circumstance that two-thirds of our original number were now waiting for us in Paris, and clinging, as we now did most painfully, to any addition to our melancholy remnant. This division, with the tameless, impassable ocean between, struck us with affright. fright. At length, after loitering for several hours on the cliff, we retired to Dover Castle, whose roof sheltered all who breathed the English air and sought the sleep necessary to restore strength and courage to our worn frames and languid spirits. Early in the morning, Adrian brought me the welcome intelligence that the wind had changed. It had been southwest, was now northeast the sky was stripped bare of clouds by the increasing gale, while the tide at its ebb seceded entirely from the town. The change of wind rather increased the fury of the sea, but it altered its late dusky hue to a bright green, and in spite of its unmitigated clamor, its more cheerful appearance instilled hope and pleasure. All day we watched the ranging of the mountainous waves, and towards sunset, a desire to decipher the promise for the morrow at its setting made us all gather with one accord on the edge of the cliff. When the mighty luminary approached within a few degrees of the tempest-tossed horizon, suddenly a wonder, three other suns, alike burning and brilliant, rushed from various quarters of the heavens toward the great orb. They whirled round it. The glare of light was intense to our dazzled eyes. The sun itself seemed to join in the dance, while the sea burned like a furnace, like all Vesuvius alight, with flowing lava beneath. The horses broke loose from their stalls in terror. A herd of cattle, panic-struck, raced down to the brink of the cliff, and blinded by light plunged down with frightful yells in the waves below. The time occupied by the apparition of these meteors was comparatively short. Suddenly the three mock suns united in one and plunged into the sea. A few seconds afterwards, a deafening, watery sound came up with the awful peal from the spot where they had disappeared. Meanwhile, the sun disencumbered from his strange satellites, paced with its accustomed majesty towards its western home. When we dared not trust our eyes late dazzled, but it seemed that the sea rose to meet it, it mounted higher and higher till the fiery globe was obscured and the wall of water still ascended the horizon. It appeared as if suddenly the motion of Earth was revealed to us, as if no longer we were ruled by ancient laws but were turned adrift in an unknown region of space. Many cried aloud that these were no meteors but globes of burning matter, which had set fire to the earth and caused the vast cauldron at our feet to bubble up with its measureless waves. The day of judgment was come, they averred, and a few moments would transport us before the awful countenance of the omnipotent Judge, while those less given to visionary terrors declared that two conflicting gales had occasioned the last phenomenon. In support of this opinion, they pointed out the fact that the east wind died away, while the rushing of the coming west mingled its wild howl with the roar of the advancing waters. Would the cliff resist this new battery? Was not the giant wave far higher than the precipice? Would not our little island be deluged with its approach? The crowd of spectators fled. They were dispersed over the fields, stopping now and then and looking back in terror. A sublime sense of awe calmed the swift pulsations of my heart. I awaited the approach of the destruction menaced with that solemn resignation which an unavoidable necessity instills. The ocean every moment assumed a more terrific aspect, while the twilight was dimmed by the rack which the west wind spread over the sky. By slow degrees, however, as the wave advanced, it took a more mild appearance. Some undercurrent of air or obstruction in the bed of waters checked its progress, and it sank gradually, while the surface of the sea became uniformly higher as it dissolved into it. This change took from us the fear of an immediate catastrophe, although we were still anxious as to the final result. We continued during the whole night to watch the fury of the sea and the pace of the driving clouds, through whose openings the rare stars rushed impetuously. The thunder of conflicting elements deprived us of all power to sleep. This endured ceaselessly for three days and nights. The stoutest hearts quailed before the savage enmity of nature. Provisions began to fail us, though every day foraging parties were dispersed to the nearer towns. In vain we schooled ourselves into the belief that there was nothing out of the common order of nature in the strife we witnessed. Our disastrous and overwhelming destiny turned the best of us to cowards. Death had haunted us through the course of many months, even to the narrow strip of time on which we now stood. Narrow indeed and buffeted by storms was our footway overhanging the great sea of calamity. As an unsheltered northern shore is shaken by the wintry wave, and frequent storms for evermore, while from the west the loud winds rave, or from the east, or mountains hoar, the struck and tottering sand bank lave. It required more than human energy to bear up against the menaces of destruction that everywhere surrounded us. After the lapse of three days, the gale died away, the seagull sailed upon the calm bosom of the windless atmosphere, and the last yellow leaf on the topmost branch of the oak hung without motion. The sea no longer broke with fury, but a swell setting in steadily for shore with long sweep and sullen burst replaced the roar of the breakers. Yet we derived hope from the change, and we did not doubt that after the interval of a few days the sea would resume its tranquility. The sunset of the fourth day favored this idea. It was clear and golden. As we gazed on the purple sea, radiant beneath, we were attracted by a novel spectacle. A dark speck, as it neared visibly a boat, rode on the top of the waves, every now and then lost in the steep valleys between. We marked its course with eager questionings, and when we saw that it evidently made for shore, we descended to the only practicable landing place, and hoisted a signal to direct them. By the help of Glasses we distinguished her crew, it consisted of nine men, Englishmen, belonging in truth to the two divisions of our people who had preceded us, and had been for several weeks at Paris. As countrymen was wont to meet countrymen in distant lands, did we greet our visitors on their landing with outstretched hands and gladsome welcome. They were slow to reciprocate our gratulations. They looked angry and resentful, not less than the chafed sea which they had traversed with imminent peril, though apparently more displeased with each other than with us. It was strange to see these human beings, who appeared to be given forth by the earth like rare and inestimable plants, full of towering passion and the spirit of angry contest. Their first demand was to be conducted to the Lord Protector of England, so they called Adrian, though he had long discarded the empty title as a bitter mockery of the shadow to which the protectorship was now reduced. They were speedily led to Dover Castle, from whose keep Adrian had watched the movements of the boat. He received them with the interest and wonder so strange a visitation created, and the confusion occasioned by their angry demands for precedence, it was long before we could discover the secret meaning of this strange scene. By degrees, from the furious declamations of one, the fierce interruptions of another, and the bitter scoffs of a third, we found that they were deputies from our colony at Paris, from three parties there formed, who each with angry rivalry tried to attain a superiority over the other two. These deputies had been dispatched by them to Adrian, who had been selected arbiter, and they had journeyed from Paris to Calais through the vacant towns and desolate country, indulging the wild, violent hatred against each other, and now they pleaded their several causes with unmitigated party spirit. By examining the deputies apart, and after much investigation, we learnt the true state of things at Paris. Since Parliament had elected him Ryland's deputy, all the surviving English had submitted to Adrian. He was our captain to lead us from our native soil to unknown lands, our lawgiver and our preserver. On the first arrangement of our scheme of immigration, no continued separation of our members was contemplated, and the command of the whole body of gradual ascent of power had its apex in the Earl of Windsor. But unforeseen circumstances changed our plans for us, and occasioned the greater part of our numbers to be divided for the space of nearly two months from the Supreme Chief. They had gone over in two distinct bodies, and on their arrival at Paris, dissension arose between them. They had found Paris a desert. When first the plague had appeared, the return of travelers and merchants and communications by letter informed us regularly of the ravages made by disease on the continent. But with the increased mortality, this intercourse declined and ceased. Even in England itself, communication from one part of the island to the other became slow and rare. No vessel stemmed the flood that divided Calais from Dover. Or if some melancholy voyager wishing to assure himself of the life or death of his relatives put from the French shore to return among us, often the greedy ocean swallowed his little craft, or after a day or two he was infected by the disorder and died before he could tell the tale of the desolation of France. We were therefore to a great degree ignorant of the state of things on the continent, and were not without some vague hope of finding numerous companions in its wide track, but the same causes that had so fearfully diminished the English nation had had even greater scope for mischief in the Sisterland. France was a blank. During the long line of road from Calais to Paris, not one human being was found. In Paris there were a few, perhaps a hundred, who resigned to their coming fate, flitted about the streets of the capital, and assembled to converse of past times, with that vivacity and even gaiety that seldom deserts the individuals of this nation. The English took uncontested possession of Paris. Its high houses and narrow streets were lifeless. A few pale figures were to be distinguished at the accustomed resort at the Tuileries. They wondered wherefore the islanders should approach their ill-fated city, for in the excess of wretchedness the sufferers always imagine that their part of the calamity is the bitterest, as when enduring intense pain we would exchange the particular torture we writhe under for any other which should visit a different part of the frame. They listened to the account the immigrants gave of their motives for leaving their native land with the shrug almost of disdain. Return, they said, return to your island, whose sea breezes and division from the continent give some promise of health. If pestilence among you has slain its hundreds, with us it has slain its thousands. Are you not even now more numerous than we are? A year ago you would have found only the sick burying the dead. Now we are happier, for the pang of struggle has passed away, and the few you find here are patiently waiting the final blow. But you, who are not content to die, breathe no longer the air of France, or soon you will only be a part of her soil. Thus, by menaces of the sword, they would have driven back those who had escaped from fire. But the peril left behind was deemed imminent by my countrymen, that before them doubtful and distant, and soon other feelings arose to obliterate fear, or to replace it by passions that ought to have had no place among a brotherhood of unhappy survivors of the expiring world. The more numerous divisions of immigrants, which arrived first at Paris, assumed a superiority of rank and power. The second party asserted their independence. A third was formed by a sectarian, a self-erected prophet who, while he attributed all power and rule to God, strove to get the real command of his comrades into his own hands. This third division consisted of fewest individuals, but their purpose was more one, their obedience to their leader more entire, their fortitude and courage more unyielding and active. During the whole progress of the plague, the teachers of religion were in possession of great power, a power of good if rightly directed or of incalculable mischief if fanaticism or intolerance guided their efforts. In the present instance, a worse feeling than either of these actuated the leader. He was an impostor in the most determined sense of the term, a man who had in early life lost, through the indulgence of vicious propensities, all sense of rectitude or self-esteem, and who, when ambition was awakened in him, gave himself up to its influence unbridled by any scruple. His father had been a Methodist preacher, an enthusiastic man with simple intentions, but whose pernicious doctrines of election and special grace had contributed to destroy all conscientious feeling in his son. During the progress of the pestilence, he had entered upon various schemes by which to acquire adherence and power. Adrian had discovered and defeated these attempts, but Adrian was absent. The wolf assumed the shepherd's garb, And the flock admitted the deception. He had formed a party during the few weeks he had been in Paris, who zealously propagated the creed of his divine mission, and believed that safety and salvation were to be afforded only to those who put their trust in him. When once the spirit of dissension had arisen, the most frivolous causes gave it activity. The first party, on arriving at Paris, had taken possession of the Tuileries, Chance and friendly feeling had induced the second to lodge near them. A contest arose concerning the distribution of the pillage. The chiefs of the first division demanded that the whole should be placed at their disposal. With this assumption, the opposite party refused to comply. When next the latter went to forage, the gates of Paris were shut on them. After overcoming this difficulty, they marched in a body to the Tuileries. They found that their enemies Had been already expelled thence by the elect, as the fanatical party designated themselves, who refused to admit any into the palace who did not first abjure obedience to all except God and his delegate on earth, their chief. Such was the beginning of the strife, which at length proceeded so far that the three divisions, armed, met in the Place Vendome, each resolved to subdue by force the resistance of its adversaries. They assembled, their muskets were loaded, and even pointed at the breasts of their so-called enemies, one word had been sufficient. And there the last of mankind would have burthened their souls with the crime of murder and dipped their hands in each other's blood. A sense of shame, a recollection that not only their cause, but the existence of the whole human race was at stake, entered the breast of the leader of the more numerous party. He was aware that if the ranks were thinned, no other recruits could fill them up that each man was a priceless gem and a kingly crown, which if destroyed, the earth's deep entrails could yield no paragon. He was a young man, and had been hurried on by presumption on the notion of his high rank and superiority to all other pretenders. Now he repented his work. He felt that all the blood about to be shed would be on his head. With sudden impulse, therefore, he spurred his horse between the bands, and having fixed a white handkerchief on the point of his uplifted sword, thus demanded parley. The opposite leaders obeyed the signal. He spoke with warmth. He reminded them of the oath all the chiefs had taken to submit to the Lord Protector. He declared their present meeting to be an act of treason and mutiny. He allowed that he had been hurried away by passion, but that a cooler moment had arrived, and he proposed that each party should send deputies to the Earl of Windsor, inviting his interference and offering submission to his decision. His offer was accepted so far that each leader consented to command a retreat, and moreover agreed that after the approbation of their several parties had been consulted, they should meet that night on some neutral spot to ratify the truce. At the meeting of the chiefs, this plan was finally concluded upon. The leader of the Fanatics indeed refused to admit the arbitration of Adrian. He sent ambassadors rather than deputies to assert his claim, not plead his cause. The truce was to continue until the 1st of February, when the bands were again to assemble on the Place Vendôme. It was of the utmost consequence, therefore, that Adrian should arrive in Paris by that day, since an hair might turn the scale, and peace, scared away by intestine broils, might only return to watch by the silent dead. It was now the 28th of January. Every vessel stationed near Dover had been beaten to pieces and destroyed by the furious storms I have commemorated. Our journey, however, would admit of no delay. That very night, Adrian and I, and twelve others, either friends or attendants, put off from the English shore in the boat that had brought over the deputies. We all took our turn at the oar, and the immediate occasion of our departure, affording us abundant matter for conjecture and discourse, prevented the feeling that we left our native country, depopulate England, for the last time, to enter deeply into the minds of the greater part of our number. It was a serene starlight night, and the dark line of the English coast continued for some time visible at intervals, as we rose on the broad back of the waves. I exerted myself with my long oar to give swift impulse to our skiff, and while the waters splashed with melancholy sound against its sides, I looked with sad affection on this last glimpse of Seagirt, England, and strained my eyes not too soon to lose sight of the castellated cliff which rose to protect the land of heroism and beauty from the inroads of ocean, that, turbulent as I had lately seen it, required such cyclopean walls for its repulsion. A solitary seagull winged its flight over our heads, to seek its nest in a cleft of the precipice. Yes, thou shalt revisit the land of thy birth, I thought, as I looked invidiously on the airy voyager, but we shall nevermore. Tomb of Idris, farewell, grave in which my heart lies sepulchred farewell forever. We were twelve hours at sea, and the heavy swell obliged us to exert all our strength. At length, by mere dint of rowing, we reached the French coast. The stars faded, and the grey morning cast a dim veil over the silver horns of the waning moon. The sun rose broad and red from the sea as we walked over the sands to Calais. Our first care was to procure horses. And although wearied by our night of watching and toil, some of our party immediately went in quest of these in the wide fields of the unenclosed and now barren plain around Calais. We divided ourselves like seamen into watches, and some reposed while others prepared the morning's repast. Our foragers returned at noon with only six horses. On these, Adrian and I, and four others, proceeded on our journey towards the great city which its inhabitants had fondly named the capital of the civilized world. Our horses had become, through their long holiday, almost wild, and we crossed the plain round Calais with impetuous speed. From the height near Boulogne, I turned again to look on England. Nature had cast a misty pall over her. Her cliff was hidden. There was spread the watery barrier that divided us, never again to be crossed. She lay on the ocean plain in the great pool, a swan's nest. Ruined the nest, alas, the swans of Albion had passed away forever. An uninhabited rock in the wide Pacific, which had remained since the creation uninhabited, unnamed, unmarked, would be of as much account in the world's future history as Desert England. Our journey was impeded by a thousand obstacles. As our horses grew tired, we had to seek for others, And hours were wasted while we exhausted our artifices to allure some of these enfranchised slaves of man to resume the yoke, or as we went from stable to stable through the towns, hoping to find some who had not forgotten the shelter of their native stalls. Our ill success in procuring them obliged us continually to leave some one of our companions behind, and on the 1st of February, Adrian and I entered Paris, wholly unaccompanied. The serene morning had dawned when we arrived at St. Denis and the sun was high, when the clamor of voices and the clash as we feared of weapons guided us to where our countrymen had assembled on the Place Vendôme. We passed a knot of Frenchmen who were talking earnestly of the madness of the insular invaders, and then coming by a sudden turn upon the Place, we saw the sun glitter in drawn swords and fixed bayonets, while yells and clamors rent the air. It was a scene of unaccustomed confusion in these days of depopulation. Roused by fancied wrongs and insulting scoffs, the opposite parties had rushed to attack each other, while the elect, drawn up apart, seemed to wait an opportunity to fall with better advantage on their foes when they should have mutually weakened each other. A merciful power interposed, and no blood was shed, for while the insane mob were in the very act of attack, the females, wives, mothers, and daughters rushed between. They seized the bridles they embraced the knees of the horsemen and hung on the necks or in weaponed arms of their enraged relatives. The shrill female scream was mingled with the manly shout, and formed the wild clamor that welcomed us on our arrival. Our voices could not be heard in the tumult. Adrian, however, was eminent for the white charger he rode. Spurring him, he dashed into the midst of the throng. He was recognized, and a loud cry raised for England and the Protector. The late adversaries warmed to affection at the sight of him, joined in heedless confusion, and surrounded him. The women kissed his hands and the edges of his garments. Nay, his horse received tribute of their embraces. Some wept their welcome. He appeared an angel of peace descending among them, and the only danger was that his mortal nature would be demonstrated by his suffocation from the kindness of his friends. His voice was at length heard and obeyed. The crowd fell back. The chiefs alone rallied round him. I had seen Lord Raymond ride through his lines, his look of victory and majestic mien obtain the respect and obedience of all. Such was not the appearance or influence of Adrian. His slight figure, his fervent look, his gesture, more of deprecation than rule, were proofs that love, unmingled with fear, gave him dominion over the hearts of a multitude, who knew that he never flinched from danger nor was actuated by other motives than care for the general welfare. No distinction was now visible between the two parties, late ready to shed each other's blood, for though neither would submit to the other, they both yielded ready obedience to the Earl of Windsor. One party, however, remained cut off from the rest, which did not sympathize in the joy exhibited on Adrian's arrival, or imbibe the spirit of peace, which fell like a dew upon the softened hearts of their countrymen. At the head of this assembly was a ponderous, dark-looking man, whose malign eye surveyed with gloating delight the stern looks of his followers. They had hitherto been inactive, but now perceiving themselves to be forgotten in the Universal Jubilee, they advanced with threatening gestures. Our friends had, as it were in wanton contention, attacked each other. They wanted but to be told that their cause was won, for it to become so. Their mutual anger had been a fire of straw compared to the slow-burning hatred they both entertained for these seceders, who seized a portion of the world to come, there to entrench and encasulate themselves and to issue with fearful sally and appalling denunciations on the mere common children of the earth. The first advance of the little army of the elect reawakened their rage. They grasped their arms and waited but their leader's signal to commence the attack, when the clear tones of Adrian's voice were heard, commanding them to fall back. With confused murmur and hurried retreat, as the wave ebbs clamorously from the sands it lately covered, our friends obeyed. Adrian rode singly into the space between the opposing bands. He approached the hostile leader, as requesting him to imitate his example, but his look was not obeyed, and the chief advanced, followed by his whole troop. There were many women among them who seemed more eager and resolute than their male companions. They pressed round their leader as if to shield him, while they loudly bestowed on him every sacred denomination and epithet of worship. Adrian met them halfway. They halted. What, he said, do you seek? Do you require anything of us that we refuse to give, and that you are forced to acquire by arms in warfare? His questions were answered by a general cry, in which the words election, sin, and red right arm of God could alone be heard. Adrian looked expressly at their leader, saying, Can you not silence your followers? Mine, you perceive, obey me. The fellow answered by a scowl, and then perhaps fearful that his people should become auditors of the debate he expected to ensue, he commanded them to fall back, and advanced by himself. What, I again ask, said Adrian, do you require of us? Repentance, replied the man, whose sinister brow gathered clouds as he spoke. Obedience to the will of the Most High, made manifest to these his elected people. Do we not all die through your sins, O generation of unbelief, and have we not a right to demand of your repentance and obedience? And if we refuse them, what then?" his opponent inquired mildly. Beware, cried the man, God hears you and will smite your stony heart in his wrath. His poisoned arrows fly, his dogs of death are unleashed. We will not perish unrevenged, and mighty will our avenger be when he descends in visible majesty and scatters destruction among you. My good fellow, said Adrian, with quiet scorn, I wish that you were ignorant only, and I think it would be no difficult task to prove to you that you speak of what you do not understand. On the present occasion, however, it is enough for me to know that you seek nothing of us, and heaven is our witness, we seek nothing of you. I should be sorry to embitter by strife the few days that we, any of us, may have here to live. When there, he pointed downwards, we shall not be able to contend, while here we need not. Go home or stay, pray to your god in your own mode, your friends may do the like. My horizons consist in peace and goodwill, in resignation and hope. Farewell." He bowed slightly to the angry disputant who was about to reply, and turning his horse down Rue Saint-Honor, called on his friends to follow him. He rode slowly, to give time to all to join him at the barrier, and then issued his orders that those who yielded obedience to him should rendezvous at Versailles. In the meantime, he remained within the walls of Paris, until he had secured the safe retreat of all. In about a fortnight, the remainder of the immigrants arrived from England, and they all repaired to Versailles. Apartments were prepared for the family of the Protector and the Grand Trianon, and there, after the excitement of these events, we reposed amidst the luxuries of the departed Bourbons. End of Volume 3, Chapter 4 Of The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Read by Nicodemus
0: Thank you once again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. You can find us online at black clock audio tales on facebook instagram and twitter meet up with us at pgttcm.com find out what's going on with this and other podcasts by badger drift studios which is where we record this in beautiful north portland if you want to be on a show if you have a book that you would like to have reviewed if you want to be on Welcome to Portland, eat charcuterie, and drink beer in the studio while learning how to podcast, I can accommodate that. But you have to take the first step by going to pgttcm.com and submitting. Send us a link to your stories. Become friends with us on Facebook at uh, PGTTCM or Black Clock Audio Tales. And PGTTCM, of course, is short for The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Our monthly show at the end of every month on Tuesday, we have PGTTCM. Thank you so much for listening. Edited by D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod as always. Thank you.